This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Hey there, I'm Casey Finey, host of Creative Control, and we're actually in production for season two of the podcast. So while we're hard at work bringing you more of the people and trends shaping the creator economy, please enjoy this throwback episode. I had Grey's Anatomy star and executive producer Ellen Pompeo on the podcast last year, and something that struck me in that conversation was the idea of breaking out of a career rut. And Ellen is the perfect person to talk about that with since she's been leading Grey's Anatomy for 18 seasons. So check out my conversation with her, and then right after that is a follow-up episode I did with a behavioral science professor on tips to make old work feel like new again. And what's interesting is some people involved in this, I won't name any names, but they said, you know, you don't have to work so hard. You don't have to prepare so much and kill yourself over the guests. And like, you can kind of just relax and just chill out and just go to your guest house and just have conversations. And it occurred to me, oh, well, I guess if you're a white guy, you can kind of just chill and half-ass it. And there's the soundbite right there. Ellen says, if you're a white guy, you can chill and half-ass it. (laughs) Go ahead, take it. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. Ellen Pompeo has spent 18 seasons playing Dr. Meredith Grey on Grey's Anatomy, so it should come as no surprise that the show is the longest-running medical drama in TV history— It should also come as no surprise that doing something for that long can either make or break your creativity. For Ellen, it's been a task of finding new ways to keep Grey's Anatomy relevant to audiences and to the cast, as well as trying new things outside of acting like her podcast Tell Me, which you've probably heard of by now. In this episode, Ellen explains how she keeps her creativity fresh, her struggles with being a perfectionist, and with maybe being a little bit too outspoken at times. Well, hi, Ellen. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. I get to talk to you today. So, (laughs) you know, I want to open by asking, I mean, in following your career and reading interviews that you've done in the past, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is the career you have right now what you saw for yourself when you started out in the entertainment industry? I don't know that I, I guess I would say no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The short answer is no, for sure. You know, in the beginning, coming from where I came from, which is the mean streets of Boston, I definitely didn't think there was a good chance of me actually making it as an actress. And and none of my dreams were sort of supported at all there. It wasn't until I sort of moved to New York City and had started sort of auditioning pretty quickly I realized that, oh, I definitely have, people are noticing something. Steven Spielberg was one of the first people. I had done a commercial and he was one of the first people to sort of reach out to me after the commercial had aired. So I think pretty quickly I had sort of thought, well, I must have something. Years later, you know, seven or eight years later, I started, you know, booking some movies and things like that. And then I definitely thought, oh, well, 
this is great. I'm going to be able to be in movies and I'm going to be a movie star as one thinks. <laughs> and pretty quickly it started becoming pretty obvious to me that I was getting offered really specific roles of like, you know, the girlfriend, always the girlfriend, always the girlfriend, always the girlfriend. Those were the bigger roles, right? Which the irony of that is they're the bigger roles, but they're not really big. There isn't much for you to do. And then, so I was trying to make the choice of being in more interesting films. Then my dilemma with that was I kept getting cut out mm. of those movies. So I was at a crossroads and I was trying to pick very good movies, but what I was being offered were very commercial, sort of after old school, I was being offered very commercial, sort of romantic comedy type movies. And I wasn't interested in doing that. I was really trying to do, you know, serious work. And every time I tried to sign on to a serious film, I would get cut out of it. So the pilot for Grace came along and I decided to do it for the money to pay my rent. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. And then it took off. Um, I'd never seen that much money in my life. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is going to be good. And then by the time my contract was up that year, I had just had a child and I was 40 years old. And I thought, oh, well, I'm super typecast as um, this character. And I'm a 40-year-old woman in Hollywood. So I better just stick around because I'm not getting any other work after this mm. at all. Ever the confident one I am. Kind of to that point, I mean, what stands out to you the most when you think about how your career took shape and really evolved to where it's at right now? And what's interesting is I started the show when I was 33 and I'm 51 now. So I've just matured and um, I've learned so much. I don't know, you know, people say you need to change to grow, which is absolutely true. Mm. But I've also learned a tremendous amount staying in the same job. Mm. I've learned different lessons, right, than I would have learned had I left and had I gone on to take bigger risks and done other things. But I definitely have learned a tremendous amount, not only about producing and things like that, but just about, you know, life <laughs> and, and the way television is made. And um, I've definitely learned some incredible lessons. And, you know, now I have three children and, uh, and there's something to be said for the stability that I've been able to provide for my kids and stay in Los Angeles. I don't have to leave them ever. I put my family first. I based my career choice staying on Grays for them. And I've definitely learned a lot of lessons from staying. Yeah. And I'm glad. I just don't regret staying this long at all. Of course. And, you know, I think because you've mentioned before in, you know, past interviews that you don't necessarily find being an actor that fulfilling creative wise. And so what do you do for creative fulfillment? Well, I definitely find it the creative, which isn't traditionally creative, but producing and continuing to try to reinvent the show mm -hmm. is a specific set of challenges that is very unique. Not your traditional creativity, but it's definitely creativity in the way that how do we continue to reinvent this show? I'm pretty involved in the storytelling, and that's always a constant challenge. I also have a production company and we develop stories and uh, develop shows and try to sell them, 
which is another, you know, huge, like pushing monster boulder up a hill. Um, It's really hard. If I had myself to offer up to star in these shows that I was pitching, I'd probably have a better chance at selling them. Mm. If I attach myself as an actor in these shows, um, that was another, you know, very specific choice I made. I could leave the show and make myself available and the things that I'm producing and trying to develop, I'd probably be able to sell them easier mm. if I was attached to Star. And I'm not ever. So it's harder for me to sell them. Yeah. But those are the things I do. I do want to stay for a second on this topic of finding a way to kind of reinvent the show and keeping it fresh because that's such a good point that you bring up. I mean, this is like the longest running like medical drama in like US TV history. So it's like, how, what are those ways? Like when you got in the position of helping to shape the show and being more of a storyteller, like what are some of those ways that you've had to make something that's lasted this long fresh for the viewers? Well, I think that one of the most important things that I'm, I'm sort of realizing now and looking at now is tonally our show 17 years ago, you know, we didn't know what we know about the medical world. Mm. We didn't know what we know now, right? The pandemic has shown a light on the medical community like we've never seen before. The inequity in medicine, the racism in medicine. And I think that specifically, those are themes that are very hard to look away from, for me anyway. We didn't talk about those things 17 years ago. Mm. Tonally, we always struck this great balance of drama and comedy. And there was the heartbreak and the life or death stakes of the hospital, but then also the fun comedy and the romance and the ironies of surgeons sort of being in these really intense surgeries, but talking about what they ate for dinner last night or whatever, which is, you know, it happens. It's really what they do, right? They do surgeries every day. So it's not like the conversation is always so intense mm-hmm. at the surgery table, but I am more interested right now in this moment of tonally being a little bit truer to what doctors really face and what it means to be a physician, what it means to be a healer, what toll that takes on a human being to have to give, give, give of yourself every single day. And how much of yourself do you give? um, And how much of yourself do you protect? And I, I think those stories are very interesting to me, albeit not exactly the tone that we always strike on Grays. It's, you know, a conversation that, we, that I have a lot. The, the tone of the stories that we're telling, the tone of the show, is it still okay? Mm-hmm. Are we not doing justice to the medical community? Because I do feel, you know, somewhat a responsibility because we have inspired so many generations of young people to go into medicine. Absolutely. So it's like, do we get to really just depict all this silliness all the time? Or do we have responsibility and an obligation to tell real stories about what healthcare workers go through? More of our throwback episode of Creative Control after the break. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com.
I definitely want to ask, like, with your podcast, which is Tell Me with Cadence 13, which, I get, like I said, it's fantastic and it's so well done. I know that a lot of celebrities have kind of gotten into the podcast game. And so what made you want to start your own? And what perspective did you want to go into podcasting with, really? I think that so many people talk to me about my voice, right? So many Your artistic voice or actual my, voice? <laughs> my actual voice. Your speak, okay, yeah. <laughs> my speaking voice. And I do the voiceovers on the show, on Grey's. And I know my voice resonates with people. Also, to that point, I have so many young women who are fans around the world, um, everywhere, South America, you know, everywhere. And I do have this platform. And how do I use it? To me, to have these young girls, whether they're on my Instagram or whether they run up to me on the street and cry and want to hug me, whether I like it or not, I've impacted them in some way. And whether I like it or not, I have a platform. And at my age, you know, having three children, I just would feel gross about having this level of privilege and fame and not trying to do something with it. Um, So tell me is really an effort on my part to just have people come on and tell me their stories talk to me about their experience, whether it's a doctor, an author, an actor, just tell stories. I mean, not every episode is going to be like some revelations, right? We have to have some entertaining. Again, I'm, you know, producing this and and, and learning how this podcast game works. I'm super new at it. Unlike yourself, who does such a great job with yours. I was going to say, you're doing great. You're doing just fine. (laughs) I'm trying to do, you know, trying to be, have a mix of entertainment and then a mix of meaningful stories that young people can listen to and maybe learn something from. And from doing the podcast, I mean, what perspective have you really gained from having these conversations and really, you know, kind of stepping into another person's world, another person's headspace, really? I've enjoyed having conversations and, you know, so much of acting is about listening, right? Acting really is listening. If you're a good actor, you listen more than you speak. You know, you don't just wait for your cues. You have to truly listen to your scene partner. And active listening is is what makes great performances. And so that's also where Tell Me comes from, is the active listening is a huge part of the craft of acting. Aside from that, I would say right now, I think emotionally, I'm in a space of really being careful about what I say, because mm-hmm. now I'm, I've been made aware that, and I always knew it, being <clears throat> an outspoken, charismatic woman, I've put myself in situations where things I say, they can pluck out five words, mm. and make it appear as if I've said something else. So I would say right now, I've like touched the electric wire on the fence. And I'm just a little <laughs> bit in shock. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm in a space where I'm just trying to be super careful about what I say because I definitely am a target. Yeah. Is that hard for you to feel like, or do you feel like you're kind of dampening yourself a bit? Well, me dampening myself a bit may not be such a bad thing, right? Mm. Maybe I'm a little too charismatic. <laughs> Maybe I, it's never a bad thing to check yourself, right? Mm-hmm. It's okay. I may be biased, but I think women are a little bit more susceptible to criticism. I don't think that's bias. I think that's fact. <laughs> I think that's been proven. So, 
And I'm, I make a choice, right? I made a choice to do a podcast. So if you want to swim with the sharks, you have to know that you might get bitten. Mm-hmm. I chose to put myself out there. So I, I have to take the shots. You know, if you put yourself in the ring, you got to take the shots and you got to make sure that you bob and weave and duck and move and don't get hit with those same punches again, you know? So it can all be a learning experience. I could certainly close up shop and not do anything, but I, I'm too much of a workaholic for that. <laughs> and I like the podcast because I get to do it from my home. So on my days off from the show, I'm able to be here with my kids and just get mm-hmm. down to my guest house and, you know, and sort of do something fun, different and creative and, and still um, be home. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm enjoying it right now, kind of. And it's okay if I, if I have to learn lessons along the way, right? Mm-hmm. And I was going to say, in diving into doing a podcast, I mean, you, you mentioned that, you know, you, you are still learning just in terms of what it goes into a podcast, like how even like stepping into the role of being an interviewer, you know, we have we haven't seen that from you. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your learning curve in this new chapter of your career in podcasting. Like what have been some of those learning lessons on, on more so like the production side and how things work and just kind of, you know, thinking of guests and thinking of topics to add to touch on. Like, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your learning curve and stepping into this new space. One of the things that stands out, which was really interesting to me, is I learned about myself. I, I know I'm very intense, right? Clearly, <laughs> I'm pretty intense, and I've been on the same show for 18 seasons. And it takes a lot of passion and intensity to continue to do the same thing and continue to find, you know, reasons to continue and continue to make it better and all of that. And so I approach this with the same intensity. And what's interesting is people involved in this, I won't name any names, but they said, you know, you don't have to work so hard. You don't have to prepare so much and kill yourself over the guests. And like, you can kind of just relax and just chill out and just go to your guest house and just have conversations. And I was like, what? No, I can't. I have to read everything they've ever done. And I have to watch everything. And I have to listen to everything they've ever said. And I guess I really put a lot of myself into things to make everything the best it can be. Mm. And it's also funny that kind of men said that to me, right? Mm. You know, white men said that to me. And it occurred to me, oh, well, I guess if you're a white guy, you can kind of just chill and half-ass it. And there's the soundbite right there. Ellen says, if you're a white guy, you can chill and half-ass it. <laughs> Go ahead, take it. Um, you know. Um, but you're not wrong. <laughs> you know, thank like you. <laughs> thank you. They won't print that. They won't print that I'm not wrong. So that was pretty, not shocking to me, but I was just like, wow, yeah. that's interesting that like, that yeah, dudes can just have podcasts and they can just sit in their garages or wherever they sit and be super relaxed about it and have fun. Like, I wouldn't say this is fun for me right now. And maybe that's, you know, where my learning curve needs to be. Maybe I need to learn to have more fun Mm. with the things that I do. I'm too intense. I'm like, is it good? Is it good? Is it interesting? I guess I'm super self-critical also, you know? Yes. And so when you think about your career, I mean, like, what would you say has been your biggest creative challenge 
My biggest creative challenge is staying on a TV show for 18 seasons. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and continuing, I have to say, one of the greatest joys in my life is getting to work alongside our executive producer, Debbie Allen. Mm -hmm. Because Debbie has been, you know, in the business since the 70s. And she is such a positive, creative person by nature that she enjoys the process alongside with me of how do we make the show great? How do we make it better? You know, she's such an encouraging person in my corner. And I don't know that I would have been able to continue the show this long if I didn't have someone like Debbie. Mm. She truly, truly is my partner in every sense of the word because her and I break down every script and talk about every episode, every season, what are we doing and how do we make it better? How do we bring these scenes to life? I can't say that I've done it myself. I wouldn't have had the positivity of thought to do this myself. Debbie has taught me how to be creative in a positive way mm. and really shown a light on the positivity of it. Cause I think it, it naturally I'm not, I'm kind of a pessimistic person <laughs> and Debbie has really been just so fun to collaborate with. Um, She's just so full of joy and energy. She's a person who does more than anyone I know. I think I do a lot. Debbie does more than everybody and still does it with so much joy and so much excitement every day. I would say the past like six seasons, you know, after Patrick Dempsey left the show was a real turning point for me. And I said, you know, I, I want to stay on and sort of prove to myself that I can do this show as the female lead and that I don't need a man to continue. And I did that for season 12. And then my contract was up and I thought, okay, well, I've proved really all I need to prove to myself, but it was Debbie that really was my partner in wanting to continue this journey with me. And I, I don't think I would be able to do it without her. Mm. Shout out to Debbie. Wow. <laughs> I always love to close the podcast with the same question, you know, at this point in your career, how have you come to define creativity? Wow. I define creativity as finding it everywhere. Mm. Creativity is something you should look for everywhere and in everything. I like that. There are no boxes for creativity, whether you're baking a pie or decorating a room, or figuring out how to make a scene that you've done 30 times, how to make it feel fresh and, and new again, which is the hardest piece of creativity. It doesn't get enough credit, actually. It's very easy to be creative when you're doing things for the first time, right? right. <laughs> very easy. Everybody can be creative when you've never done this scene before. Can you do the same exact scene in the same room that you've done it a thousand times before? And can you stay present and make that scene good? To me, that's the ultimate creative challenge. I love that. I could flex with that. That's my <laughs> flex right there. And flex away you will and shall and should. Thank you so much, Ellen. <laughs> this was so lovely. Thank you for your time. I just, uh, I, this, this is the reason why I love doing this podcast, because I get to talk to people like you. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. 
It was so fun. It was great to meet you. Thanks for having oh, me. Oh, my pleasure. I enjoy your podcast as well. So fun. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. Last week, I had Ellen Pompeo on the show, and the theme of making something old feel new again kept popping up. I mean, she's been on Grey's Anatomy for 18 seasons, so who could blame her? I wanted to dig into this idea more, and I came across a research paper titled Unconventional Consumption Methods and Enjoying Things Consumed, Recapturing the First-Time Experience. It's perfect, right? So I reached out to Ed O'Brien, Associate Professor of Behavioral Science at the University of Chicago and one of the authors of this paper, to break down how we can all find new ways of tackling something we think is too familiar or boring. All right, Professor O'Brien. <laughs> I feel like I should use you know, formal titles for this. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Ed is fine. Ed is totally fine. Okay, we'll go with Ed. So I asked you on the podcast because last week I spoke with actor and producer Ellen Pompeo and asked her what her greatest creative challenge has been throughout her career. So I'm going to play you what she said, and then we'll talk. There are no boxes for creativity. Whether you're baking a pie or decorating a room, or figuring out how to make a scene that you've done 30 times, how to make it feel fresh and, and new again, which is the hardest piece of creativity. It doesn't get enough credit. It's very easy to be creative when you're doing things for the first time, right? Right. <laughs> very easy. Everybody can be creative when you've never done this scene before. Can you do the same exact scene in the same room that you've done it a thousand times before? Can you stay present and make that scene good? To me, that's the ultimate creative challenge. So that conversation led me to your research. So I ask you, how can we make something old feel new again? Yeah, sure. So my degree is in social psychology. So I'm formally trained as a, as a social psychologist. Basically, what we study at a broader level is kind of the interaction between content and context. Mm. So something I'm really interested in is, is thinking about this in terms of enjoyment and, and how can people have you know, more, more lasting experiences. Just as a, as a starting point of a simple example, you can think about any experience having both content and context that kind of come together to affect our, our reactions to it, our, our perceptions of it, and so forth. Take a cup of coffee. How good or bad the coffee tastes depends on two things. One is the content of the coffee, like, are these beans any good? Is it actually good? And the other is the context in which we're drinking it. So, you know, what's our mood? Are we alone? Are we in public? Did we recently drink coffee before? All of these things also come together to, to shape what we think of this cup right in front of us. There's one really obvious thing you can do if something grows stale, which is flip out the content, right? This is very intuitive to us. If something gets boring to you, just go do something else, find something else to do. Right. <laughs> uh, th that's changing the beans, so to speak. That's changing the content. In our research, we are interested in, well, can we also kind of pull the other lever? So if we're stuck with the same old thing, it's the same coffee right in front of us, we can't flip it out. Well, if context also matters, maybe we can change the context, right? Experience this thing in a brand new way. Maybe that also can affect our enjoyment and happiness for it. So that's basically what we set out to test in this project. And indeed, what we find is holding constant the actual thing. So something that has grown stale for you, you do find it boring. Um, if you can get people to consume it in a different way, it's a new context in which they're experiencing it. 
that seems to also bleed into these overall perceptions of how fun it is, how, en how enjoyable it is. And we can kind of recapture the excitement of, of a first-time experience to some extent by consuming an old thing in a brand new way. Mm. And what's an example of that? Yeah, so, um, so in the paper, we do a couple different studies. Again, these are kind of small laboratory studies looking at enjoyment, but we can think about kind of broader parallels. Um, so for example, in our first study, we did an eating taste test in the lab. And eating is a good domain because it's very clear that the more you eat of the same exact food over and over again, you're going to grow sick of it. Right. This is just kind of a basic uh, biological reaction. So we exploited that in our, in our study. We had people repeatedly eat the same popcorn over and over and over again. If you just map out enjoyment ratings over time, you see this unsurprising effect that enjoyment goes down. But then we tried to give them a new context. So again, it's the same exact popcorn. It's the same exact stomach that's getting full. Except for some participants, we gave them chopsticks and we said, now we want you to eat this popcorn with chopsticks. Have you ever done that before? And they said, no. Have you ever thought about doing that before? They said, no. He said, great. So this is a brand new way for you to eat popcorn. And lo and behold, what we find is once they continue the taste test, their enjoyment ratings go back up. They kind of rebound from their full stomach and they start to say things like, oh, this tastes pretty good. This is interesting to me again. I no longer feel as full. These kind of psychological reactions akin to having a fresh start, even though the thing itself, the popcorn remains the same, approaching in a different way kind of changes people's attention and in turn changes people's experience. Oh, that's interesting. So I, I'm wondering how this can be applied to work. I mean, going back to Ellen Pompeo's problem of being stuck in a rut, which I think is so relatable for a lot of people in the creative space, how can this research be applied to everyday work? Of course, yeah. Welcome to the human experience. This is something we all, we all face. You can think about this research joining lots of others out there in psychology that, that again, highlights the power of context in you know, where we are affects what we do. And so you can think about work context to the extent that you can literally go to a different situation. If you have that luxury of not having to go to the same office five days a week, so to speak, that's right from wisdom from the psychology literature. Uh, just put yourself in a new environment. Working from a cafe one day a week has real psychological benefits in terms of kind of freshening up your kind of mental space. One thing that I do in, in my work, so the creative output, so to speak, for academics is writing papers. That, that's what we do. And of course, writing, as many of your listeners can probably identify with, writing is just an enormously frustrating space for creativity. Yes. <laughs> the, the writer's block, you know, blank, blank word document is real for all of us. Um, one thing that I try to do that, again, this is anecdotal, but I'm thinking about, um, thinking about a lot of the research out there that, that might inform this. So after I write something, so, you know, of course, we all share our drafts with friends and colleagues and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. By the time it, it's finally kind of ready to go for me, I then put the whole document in a totally different font, like a really weird looking font. And it's you know, mm. different sizes and different colors, maybe. And then I reread it like that. And at least for me, anecdotally, what, what I think that's doing is forces me to engage with this thing in a new way, right? So again, this is kind of akin to our content versus context idea that mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's the same words on the page. But now I'm, I'm, I literally have to think differently about them because it's going to take me extra time to read them and process them. And, and I notice in that experience that that subtle change of context often brings to light different kinds of ideas. So I'm thinking, oh, this line doesn't really work. Or now that I'm hearing this out loud in my head, I don't like this section or this section needs to be expanded in a way that, you know, if, if I kept the same old font, I don't think I would approach that, that content the same way. So again, to your question, if there is anything you can do to change the situation, 
if you're stuck with the same old thing, the same rut, psychologists have long shown that, that again, that's kind of a subtle trick for you to kind of think about the stimulus in a fresher way. So again, literally going to the coffee shop one day a week, there's real benefits to that. But even if you can't do that, again, thinking about the analogy of you changing the font of your paper, right, forces you to engage with those words in a subtly different way, but a powerfully different way. And please tell me you changed the font to wingdings. Please tell me you did that. <laughs> That's, you I will next time. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Since you've done this research, which was what, back in 2018, have you been following this along? Like, has there been any, any evolution in your findings or any updates? Yeah, so we very much still are interested in, in these ideas. Um, one thing that has emerged since that initial paper is kind of a, a broader framework for understanding how people think about things they no longer find fresh. Like, like, what is it about people's perceptions of boredom and staleness that informs their reactions and their behavior? And you know, one thing that, that my lab is looking at these days is questioning that assumption altogether. So let's take a step back and think about the things that we think are stale are they actually stale if you force yourself to engage with them? And one thing we find is for lots of different stimuli, lots of different experiences out there, they strike our mind as being stale. Like, you know, our minds are quick to conclude, kind of been there, done that. Like you've seen one plot of one TV show and you say, yeah, I've seen it all before. But if you force yourself, for example, in, in my world, if you force our research participants to continually engage with that same thing, the thing that they would say, I don't want to do that anymore, it's boring. Well, if you kind of force them to do it for a longer period of time, they end up reporting things like, you know, I found a lot of new things to do and I didn't realize it had these many components. And they basically come away from their sustained repeat experience saying, oh, that thing was fresher than I thought. Hmm. And so that's kind of where our lab is going these days. Again, again, kind of questioning the basic assumption that things are as stale as we think they are. Right. Oh, that's so interesting to me. I mean, so do you find that people just automatically slip into that mindset of thinking something stale? Because as you mentioned, this is it sounds as if people are calling something stale when it's really not to them. So I guess like how do you how do you reach that point of of falsely accusing <laughs> something of being stale? Because I think to identify that would help people to avoid that in a way. So I guess like how do people reach that point of thinking? That of, of their brain tricking them into thinking that something is actually stale when it's not? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question thinking about when that's true and when that's not true so you can, right. can guide what you're repeating or not. You know, I will say thinking about the research more generally out there on this topic, I mean, people are more boring than they think they are. That, you know, they, that, that's one way to summarize a lot of the work out there that we, we think we really crave, you know, something flashy and new and variety is the spice of life. But at the end of the day, if you, right. if you look at what people do and, you know, the things they watch and listen to in their everyday routines, it's remarkably similar from day to day. We get a lot of pleasure out of familiarity. And so back to, to this question of, you know, what kinds of things are worth repeating versus what kinds of things are worth, new things are worth chasing. You know, I would encourage anyone who, who reads our stuff to give anything a shot, at least one more chance than what you might normally do. So again, you, know, you can't stick around forever waiting for the good stuff to come out. But whenever you hit that wall thinking, been there, done that, also try to think to yourself, well, have I done this like one more time? Maybe there's, there's, there's a little bit more out there that I'm not seeing. Hmm. That alone could be an easy heuristic, an easy kind of shortcut that it's not always going to you know, yield a pot of gold. But I think you might be surprised that the novelty that's left remaining and what seems old and familiar explains a lot of different kinds of experiences out there. It's, it's not just a, kind of an exceptional case. Right. I, 
Wow, you saying that we're we're more boring than we think we are really really touched touched my soul because I immediately not my intention, of, not my intention. No, no, because it's true. Because I find myself even just something the simple act of like listening to the same music over and over again. Like I just find myself like having to think. Wait a minute, I've listened to this playlist like for the past two months, nothing but this. I should probably step outside of it. But listening to it, like it's something familiar. Kind of it gives me joy. And so I guess maybe there just needs to be a rebranding of the term boring. It's not exactly not that bad of a thing. Exactly. Just a quick, I think you'll find the study kind of funny. So one example of this in our studies, we had participants look at different kinds of enjoyable images. So Mm -hmm. for some of them, the image was very complex. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of new stuff that you can look at the longer you look at this. So it's a big collage of, of nature images and so forth. And what we do is flash that collage for a few seconds. Participants tell us how much they enjoyed it. And then we ask them, so what is it going to be like if you keep looking at this thing? And here is where we find that the biggest kind of problem for people underappreciating repetition. They're, they're quick to say, yeah, I got it. That was a collage of nature images. It's going to be boring the more I see it. And of course, if you force them to relook at it, they notice all of these new things and they find it a lot cooler than they thought. To your question, we even find this effect in a different condition when the image is extraordinarily simple. So literally, I think we use an image of just a blue dot. It's just a blue dot. And we show the blue dot to participants for a couple seconds. They say how much they enjoyed it. And then they predict how enjoyable it will be to keep looking at this same simple blue dot. And even there we find that again, participants tell us, no, that's going to be boring. It's a waste of my time. If you force them to look at the blue dot, they say, oh, that was pretty cool. I, I could look at that blue dot over and over hmm. again, right? It's, it's back to this idea of maybe we're a little bit more, more boring than we like to think of ourselves, right? There, there's, there's immense pleasure to just you know, repeating simple, enjoyable things as much as there can be for the complex and, and the various out there. Right. And so, I mean, for, in, in your research, do you find that people, because this is obviously a, in a controlled setting where you're asking people to do these things. And so in just sort of, I guess, like, what would be your advice to people in kind of an everyday situations? Is it just being aware of looking for those new things? I guess, like, what, how would you apply this in a practical setting for people who are experiencing things, something over and over again? How can they go about really paying attention and, and really like receiving something new from it? Yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of the wisdom from psychology is a little bit frustrating in that it amounts to you need to do more reflection and you know just <laughs> you need to think think more you know spend another minute than you might normally would just thinking about your experiences reflecting on why you feel the way you feel it's frustrating because it takes work but the flip side is just small moments of reflection are shown to go a long way so for example in the context of what we're talking about here one thing i try to do is almost imagine kind of a a percent experienced gauge that after I, you know, I watch a show or visit a city or go to a restaurant, whatever experience you want to think about here, after I do that thing once, I try to actively reflect on, well, what percentage of this did I actually experience, right? If, if I'm thinking about a meter, like how full is that experienced meter? Now that's imperfect. Maybe I'm guessing incorrectly. And it, it, again, it's not kind of a, it's not a fail safe strategy, but just that extra moment of reflection often gets me to realize, oh, wait, there were, you know, 49 other items on the menu. I only ordered one or, oh, there's, you know, a hundred different attractions in the city. I only did a, a handful. Realizing that helps, I think, calibrate people's you know, predictions about what it's like to repeat and potentially even guides them to dive deeper, right? It's not just getting a surface level pass, but really trying to pursue a deeper experience through that kind of reflection. Hmm. So I guess 
in a way to to kind of summarize what we've been talking about, it's really about reflecting on what you've done or the things that you think you've done, really making sure that you've gone as far as you can. And once you have gone as far as you can, trying to find a new way to approach it, to kind of go over again. It sounds like, you know, it's like, what as you mentioned, like that meter, once it's making sure that it's actually full, and once it's full, then you can step back and be like, okay, let me put this in a different font. <laughs> exactly, exactly. In decision research, people often talk about for any kind of interaction, not just enjoyable experiences, but trying to think more wisely in everyday life, constantly asking yourself, what could prove me wrong? And what might I be missing? And kind of rehearsing those two questions in your head pretty much after anything you do, is a long-standing wisdom in the psychology literature. Again, to try to fill in those mental gaps that without reflection, we often don't realize are there. Mm. Oh, that's so fascinating. And I can't. I, I ask this of all my guests at the end of the podcast, and I would, I'm dying to hear your response given everything we've talked about, but how have you come to define creativity? Great question. Um, I would say, you know, being creative is being able to see every possible side of the same old thing before moving on to something new. Mm. Um, I think there's a big power in um, deepening our experiences. Have we really like, you know, peeled off all of the layers of this onion before we discard it? I think the most creative individuals out there are the ones that don't necessarily have a hundred different things on, you know, going on that they're, look how spread out they are across so many different domains and so many different ideas. It's the people that have maybe one idea that they've looked at from every possible angle. And that, you know, they realize that there's still so much value in that thing that they're not going to let go wasted, that they're going to kind of reap all of the utility out of this experience, this idea, whatever the case may be, before going to something new. To me, that's the mark of a truly creative person. I love that. Oh, Ed, this was wonderful. Thank you. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, Casey. This is great. I'll make sure this reaches Ellen Pompeo. I'm sure she'd appreciate it. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh. That's going to do it for this throwback episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you're in the loop when our new season drops in the fall. See you then.